Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Mina Kim. This hour, many said it was the most important race for district attorney in the nation. Criminal justice reformer George Gascon left his job as San Francisco DA last year and then challenged a tough-on-crime incumbent DA in Los Angeles, defeating her by a narrow margin. Gascon, a staunch opponent of the death penalty, is a strong supporter of recent criminal justice reforms that were opposed by most law enforcement officials. Gascon joins us this hour to discuss his plans for reforming the L.A. District Attorney's Office, his pledge to reopen investigations into fatal police shootings, and much more. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in today for Mina Kim. Well, last year, George Gascon unexpectedly resigned from his job as San Francisco's district attorney and moved to L.A., where he soon announced he would run against the incumbent district attorney, Jackie Lacey, a traditional law and order DA who was seeking a third term. Gascon won, despite fierce opposition from the L.A. Police Officers Union and others. Gascon strongly opposes capital punishment. He has uh, been a longtime supporter of reforming the criminal justice system and looking for alternatives to incarceration. He takes over on December 7th, making him the first person, I believe, to be the top prosecutor in two California counties. George Gascon, welcome back to Forum. Scott, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Congratulations on your win. Am I correct? You are will be the first person to be the DA in two counties in California? I, I believe that maybe in the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to be too grandiose, but yes, I thought yeah, that might well, be the ha- case. Having had anyone challenge that, yes. So <laughs> okay. Yeah, for sure, California. Yeah, <laughs> Two major well, counties, for sure. For sure. Well, tell us, what do you think is the significance of your victory? What message do you think Angelinos were sending? I think, you know, Angelinos were sending a very clear message, as I think the rest of California that, uh, you know, the, the, the reform message is something that uh, resonates with, with the public. I think if you look at the election, there were two things that happened at the same time. If you look at the state level, you have Proposition 20, which was an attempt by traditional prosecutors and law enforcement and prison guards to sort of dial back the reforms of Prop 47 and Prop 57 and realignment. And that failed uh, statewide, but it failed, you know, in L.A. County as well. And then in L.A. County, you have my election, which, as you indicated in the opening of the program, it was heavily contested. Uh, there was a lot of police union. In fact, you know, the, 
San Francisco Police Officers Association put several hundred thousand dollars into the race, uh, as well as clearly uh, L.A. law enforcement and, and, and prosecutors around the state. And they lost and they lost by a big margin. You know, I uh, you know, when when all the votes were counted, there was about an eight point spread, about two hundred fifty thousand votes uh, more that I got. You know, I got over two million people that voted for me. But at the same time that we had that resounding victory for my race in L.A. County, there was also a Measure J, which is an L.A. County measure that talked about reallocating funding from the, the sort of the carceral part of the criminal justice system. So from, you know, jails and, and prosecutors and sheriff, and that money is going into mental health services and mm. social services. Um, so there was also that that was going on. I think what, if you put it all together, I think the voters are telling, uh, they're telling law enforcement for sure. Look, we, not only are we not going back, meaning we're not going to go and unwind Prop 47 and 57, but furthermore, we're moving forward. We're, we're moving away from the old system. And what I'm hoping is that prosecutors and law enforcement stop. And, I'm, and when I'm talking about that, I'm talking generally of the, the unions, uh, the, the, the labor organizations that they stop continuing to fight reform as they have for the last eight or nine years and they join the reform effort because it's going to happen whether they want to support it or not. But it sure would be nicer if we're not fighting one another and we're working together towards creating a, a more thoughtful and a more humane uh, criminal justice system going into the 21st century and eliminating the systemic racism that has plagued our system for. You for generations. Yeah, and you know, you talk about uh, more cooperation, but at the same time, you're talking about reopening investigations into fatal police shootings that the current DA, Jackie Lacey, declined to prosecute. I mean, how can you, I mean, that's obviously antithetical to what the unions want to do. Uh, how do you find common ground there? Well, look, I mean, the, 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 here's the problem, right? When police officers are doing the right things, and sometimes police officers are going to have to use uh, force, including deadly force, in order to protect themselves and others, they need to be supported, right? And I've always been one that supported police officers when they have used force appropriately. However, when police officer is police officer are using excessive force and they're violating the law, they need to be held accountable just like anybody else in the community. The credibility, the legitimacy of our system depends on people believing that the system is going to work well and across the board, that you don't have any 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 uh, sacred cows, if you will. And the problem is, frankly, that when there is a there is a lack of credibility and a lack of support, actually are the, the women and men that are working in uniform in the streets are the ones that actually bear the brunt of that because, you know, they depend on poli uh, they depend on community believing in their work and wanting them to be there. And what we have right now is we have a tremendous amount of uh, dysfunction because many members, and especially in our uh, black and brown communities, feel that the criminal justice system not only doesn't work for them, but that, that uh, more critically, that their lives don't matter. And that the whole Black Life Matters movement is really built up around the concept that for years, uh, you know, African-Americans in this country, and, and we know that also Latinos, I've often been at the brunt of receiving the brunt of the force by police in ways that was unnecessary and sometimes unlawful. 
You uh, were pressured when you were DA here in San Francisco to bring charges against police officers in, a, in several high-profile cases, including the Mario Woods killing, which was captured on videotape. Uh, that was back in 2015. He, was, he had a knife in his hand. I believe he also had mental health problems. Uh, he was shot by five officers. And you declined, as you did in the other cases, to bring charges. And you said you would have liked to bring charges, but that you were bound by law not to prosecute. So have things changed? I know that there have been some reforms passed and signed by the governor up in Sacramento. Do you feel now that you have the tools you need to bring charges when it's appropriate? Well, uh, there's two components to this. Actually, uh, Mario Wood's case was a case that I went out very openly. If you recall, I did a press conference. I said the shooting is unnecessary, but unfortunately it, it is lawful. Uh, you know, Mario Woods had a knife. He had stabbed someone else. He was holding the knife. The officers told him to drop the knife. He didn't. But I think myself, as, as almost anybody else that looked at that tape, that video, they saw that the shooting didn't have to occur. But unfortunately, it was lawful. And the difference, by the way, between the shootings that I faced uh, in uh, San Francisco and the ones that I'm looking to reopen here in L.A., in San Francisco, there were all people that were armed. Now, some cases, as in the case of Mario Woods, I made it publicly known that I thought it was unnecessary. And frankly, I challenged the legislator, and I was the only district attorney that campaigned statewide to change the law. So the law that we have now, I was the only district attorney that actually worked with legislators to get us to, to that new law. But in L.A. County, we have cases of people that were unarmed, much like in the case, the O'Neill case that now uh, Chase uh, is going to move on. The, you know, the, he's, he's filing the, filed that case, which is a case that occurred during my time, but the investigation wasn't completed by the time I left. Um, so what I'm looking to reopen in L.A. County are cases similar to the O'Neill case, where you have people that have been unarmed and they were shot by police in ways that, uh, you know, I believe, uh, and certainly others have reviewed the cases that they need to be reopened because they, they, there are this possibility that they, they would be unlawful. And, you know, much like, uh, you know, Chase and us moving forward with the O'Neill case, very different cases from from the Mario Woods case, unfortunately. Did you talk with Chase Aboudin? Did he reach out to you before he filed charges? I, we haven't talked about the case, but, you know, Chase and I have been, a, a, you know, we've been in conversations. You know, as you all know, I supported him. Uh, to, to get elected, and he endorsed me during my election here in L.A. County, and we are both uh, founding members, uh, four member, four DAs. Well, now I can say I'm a DA. I was not a DA at the moment. I was running. Four of us have formed uh, a new organization statewide that is called uh, Prosecutors Alliance, which is actually an alternative to, to the California District Attorneys Association where we're trying to bring a more progressive look to the work. Uh, so we have been working regularly and, and you know, we uh, plan to work together because we're, uh, you know, we're very aligned on the way that we want to kind of just move forward. So you think Boudin's decision then, based on what you know and what you saw as you were investigating that case, that's a, that's a, a correct decision? I, I believe so. And, you know, we were, we had not completed the investigation by the time that I'd left. Uh, but based on the preliminary information that I had, I believe that he the, the decision that he's made is a correct decision. You know, there's a certain irony in all this. Uh, you, when you were DA here, you were sort of hounded by protesters uh, at your home in the Mission District in San Francisco. Uh, many of them pressing you with uh, you know, loudspeakers and harassment of all kinds. I believe you had to get a restraining order at one point to keep them away from your front steps. Um, and, you know, now you're in 
uh, L.A., uh, where there is also a very robust police reform movement uh, that has been uh, harassing your the current D.A., Jackie Lacey. I don't want to say harassing, but, you know, clearly they've been making their voice heard with her. And yet they're probably partly responsible for your winning uh, this election. Do you do you see that irony? You know, I do. By the way, they they definitely were strong supporters of mine, and I would say that they it was a lot of a lot of the people in the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and, and other organizations that really asked that I run for DA here. Uh, you know, there is an irony, and I think it's unfortunate that in San Francisco, uh, you know, we had shootings that were unnecessary, which I said so, and unfortunately, there were people in the community that that for a variety of reasons, and I understand, you know, deep pain, uh, that they just couldn't accept that, that unfortunately the law wasn't there to prosecute those cases. So they, you know, I think there was a natural human reaction to, to uh, target me as, a, as their, you know, the point of anger. Um, and it was unfortunate, and there's no question that there's an irony in, in that whole process. Uh, I think that People here recognize uh, the problems that I encountered there, and and they also recognize a lot of the progressive work that I did in San Francisco, which they would like to see here. Um, and uh, you know, I'm listen. I'm, I'm moving forward. Um, I, I think Chase is doing a wonderful job in San Francisco, and I, I'm hoping that those families will find some uh, reprieve and, and at least see in a case like the O'Neill case uh, being prosecuted. And the, the, there is a new law, obviously, that will that will alter the way the cases. I mean, quite frankly, under the current law, that is now the, the state legislation, which is the one that I supported, uh, the Mario Woods case would have been a prosecutable case, but you cannot go retroactively to those cases. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to continue our conversation with George Gascon, San Francisco's former district attorney, just elected DA in L.A. County. He's got big plans to shake up the nation's largest local prosecutor's office. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQ. QED forum, or if you like, email us. It's forum at kqed.org. Scott Schaefer in today for Mina Kim. Lots more to talk about. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today, this hour, and I'm talking with George Gascon, San Francisco's former district attorney and the district attorney-elect in Los Angeles County. He takes office one week from today. If you'd like to join us, give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. And George, I want to ask you, uh, you know, you talked about Prop J passing in Los Angeles, which is going to move money away from sort of traditional law enforcement, jails, incarceration, and toward things like mental health. That is essentially, I think, what the defund the police movement 
meant. Uh, you know, and I realize that's a very disparate movement and different people mean different things when they say that. But, you know, there was a lot of uh, feeling in the Democratic Party, especially among moderates, that that really cost Democrats in this past election in some of those down ballot races in more purple districts. What are your thoughts about how do you market, if that's the right word, how do you sell this idea uh, to, you know, more, you know, sort of mainstream moderate voters? Yeah, and you know, Scott, uh, Measure J was a, a, the beginning of a process of reallocating resources that were, frankly, taken away from mental health and, 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 uh, and you know, public health years ago. I, I think the, 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 the disconnect, I think, is a lot of people forget that we defunded public education and mental health services and public health in this country and in the state about 30 years ago. We started defunding uh, education. You know, we built 22 prisons in the last 30 years. We built one public university. Uh, we reduced funding for mental health services. We reduced funding for public housing. Uh, you know, per capita, we spend less in public housing today than we did in the 19, early 1980s. So there was a whole defunding process of all the social services and a shifting of that money, reallocating that money into uh, policing, prosecution, and prisons and jails. And and we are now sort of paying the price of those mistakes. And, and to me, the whole issue is an issue of reallocating funds, basically establishing right-sizing of law enforcement and prosecutions. You know, look, there's always going to be policing and prosecutors and jails and prisons. The question is, do they need to be the size that they are today? Should we have police responding to calls that really require somebody that is a mental health expert or a social worker? Uh, do we need to have jails take the place of housing, which we have regularly, especially when we're talking about that mentally ill people, people with substance abuse, which in the last three decades, we have gotten used to just simply warehousing them into our jails and our prison systems and replacing, quite frankly, money that was before used for public housing and other housing services. So the conversation that I see taking place in L.A. County is not that we're going to get rid of policing. Certainly, I don't believe that's appropriate. Uh, and I believe that a lot of the voters on what we're saying is we need to start shifting the balance. We need to right size uh, the, you know, the carceral part of the system. And conversely, we need to move money into the other services and then reduce the need to have more policing and more jails and more prisons. Uh, that's what I see. And I believe that the problem that some Democrats around the, the country that are complaining about the defunding the police and stuff is really uh, it's, a, it's a lack of being able to articulate what is being talked about. There's no question. Look, you're going to have some people on the extreme, right? That are abolitionists. They believe that they should never, we should get rid of policing and jails and prison. That is a small minority, certainly not that I that I agree with. And I think on the right, you have people that believe that we should just get rid of all the services and just lock everybody up, right? And we have done that for the last 30, 40 years in this country and certainly in the state. And I think that the, what the conversation is doing is the pendulum is coming to the middle. So actually, I would tell the moderates actually that the moderate approach. It's exactly what Measure J is doing. That is not a radical approach. It's simply right-sizing the system. And unfortunately, I think some people have been unable to articulate this in a way that, that, that makes sense for some of the voters. If you'd like to join our conversation with George Gascone, give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at 
KQED forum, or if you prefer, you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. Let's go to Oakland now. And Kate, welcome. Hi, this is Kate Walker-Brown. Um, I live in Oakland, but I do a lot of work in Los Angeles, and so I'm really eager to hear how you are going to support victims of human trafficking as you traffic as you prosecute trafficking cases. Jerk? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question, Kate. You know, much like we did in San Francisco, you know, we created a, a very victim-centered approach to our work, which, number one, doesn't criminalize the victims because we know that in many places, and quite frankly, uh, in some counties, uh, we have seen often a conversation around fighting uh, human trafficking. But when we look at who's being prosecuted, are usually young women and young men that are actually in, in sex work. And they're the ones that are being trafficked and they're the ones that are getting prosecuted. So it's really important to distinguish between the people that are being victimized, especially when it comes to sex work and being prosecuted and treated as criminals. Uh, we stopped doing that in San Francisco uh, shortly after I became a district attorney. And then really targeting those resources, number one, to provide services uh, for those that are being trafficked. And then when appropriate, using the prosecutorial arm to go after those that are actually the, the real traffickers. And Based that on would what? be the same work that I would be doing in L.A. Based on what you know in L.A., has L.A. not been doing that? Have they been, you know, continuing to target uh, the sex workers? Yeah, L.A. has very much done the same thing that, you know, frankly, uh, other counties around the Bay Area have done. You know, and I think, Kate, you probably know really well, uh, sex workers get prosecuted in many parts of the Bay Area. They didn't in San Francisco. and They have in L.A. In fact, we have seen sometimes even uh, young women in L.A. Uh, having body attachments because they... They would not cooperate to turn in their pimp, even though that we knew that, uh, you know, that, that turning in their pimp would probably lead to serious harm to themselves and their family. So it's understanding you have to thread this needle very finely, but you don't want to criminalize the victims. All right, Kate, thanks so much for the call. Let's go now to Nevada City. And Ed, you're next. Hey, how you doing? Uh, good to hear this, uh, this debate and the, the issues covered. I'm an old cop. I retired in the mid-80s on a disability, as most cops do. And um, we used to always want social services with us when we went to a family dispute call or a, a mentally disturbed person or something like that, because we didn't want to handle it. And so now cops have, over the last 30 years, cops have evolved to the point where they do handle those things. And it's been inappropriate all this time for cops to handle these things. And now we're getting back to the issue that cops were after in the mid-'80s that said, let's get some social workers out here. And, of course, that rebounded with the defunding of public services because uh, the public felt that it was not appropriate. Well, that was a mistake to yeah. do that, and uh, we are now in a uh, interest being very interesting evolution. Ed, uh, were you, I'm just curious, were you a cop in Nevada County, or where were you? Uh, Monterey County, five years, two years in Trinity County, and seven in Placer County. Okay, okay, good. Uh, you know, George, this one, we, we talked earlier about the Mario Woods case, and there are so many of these incidents where there's a fatal shooting, and you just think, wouldn't it have been nice to have somebody there who could de-escalate the situation? Uh, and and I, I, is that what part of what we're talking about here when you, you talk about having social workers or me people who are more skilled in, in mental uh, illness and mental health? 
Absolutely, absolutely, Scott. And, and, and I just want to thank Ed for, for raising the issue that he did because he's absolutely right. Uh, you know, I was a cop about the same time that he was a cop to it. And, and, you know, we, we wanted to have, you know, certainly uh, a different, uh, you know, different people that did not necessarily carry a gun on the badge come and handle these cases. And, and unfortunately, uh, we didn't. And I think the Mari Woods case, Scott, is a perfect example where someone with uh, expertise in mental health uh, handling, a clinician, uh, would have probably handled that case very, very differently. Um, of course, it, there are other moving parts to this case, too. I mean, I think that this was a case where, um, at least in my estimation, the officers uh, prompted the shooting. There was, you know, they had been walking with him for a while. There was really no reason for, for that one officer to step in front of him and block him and that then precipitated under the law at the time, the shooting. Uh, but there is no question that a, a, a mental health clinician would have probably handled a call very differently. Uh, but even other police officers probably would have as well. That was really prompted at the end by what I consider to be an unnecessary uh, strategy by the officers that were at the scene that led to the shooting and the killing. Yeah. All right, Ed, thanks very much for the call. Uh, we have a comment from Butch who writes, and before I, actually before I read his comment, let me just say that among the things voters did in November was they rejected Prop 25, which would have eliminated cash bail. That was a referendum on a law that uh, had been signed by the governor. Uh, and, and so we're going to keep uh, cash bail probably you know for the foreseeable future. And Butch writes, if you eliminate cash bail, how do you ensure the defendant will show up for trial and court appearances? Yeah, you know, Bush, and you're right. And and, and the voters rejected uh, Prop 25, I believe, for a couple of reasons. I think it was very confusing. Obviously, it was funded. You know, the 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 the, the prop uh, uh, Prop 25 people funded that were uh, the the bail industry because they're fighting for their survival. Uh, but I think there were a lot of people in the in the activist community and a lot of uh, social justice reform uh, reform people that also uh, supported Prop 25 because they believe that the use of algorithms and to assess risk were discriminatory in nature. And they believe that uh, that what needed to happen was to get rid of cash bail, but also get rid of the algorithms. And so they, they strategically joined forces with the, uh, with the bail industry, the cash bail industry, uh, in a belief that now they can go back and, and create new law that will still get rid of cash bail. The interesting thing is that there's no evidence that cash bail guarantees that people are going to come back, right? Uh, there, there are a lot of jurisdictions in the country already that stopped using cash bail years ago, and people do show up. And in San Francisco, we used to we started using uh, our PSA. We we started to get rid of cash bail to a great extent. PSA in San meaning Francisco. Yeah, it was a public safety assessment tool, which was a a, a uh, an algorithm that came out of the Arnold Foundation that assessed risk and determine people that could be released without any bail. And we were releasing a lot of people in San Francisco already without bail. And interestingly enough, they were outperforming, uh, meaning they were not committing other crimes and they were coming back to court. They were outperforming the people that were released on bail. So I believe that, you know, cash bail, and certainly I'm going to work hard to make sure that we get rid of cash bail, uh, because the cash bail, what it does is it brings an inequity in the system where poor people that cannot afford the bail are generally uh, held in pretrial confinement, sometimes for a week and month, where they are forced into uh, taking a plea deal that they may not have otherwise. And people that have the capacity to post bail, they, they get out even if they're dangerous. And we've actually had uh, examples in San Francisco, people 
posting very high bills and going out and harming others. So there, there is absolutely no connection between your financial capacity to post bail and your not being dangerous or being dangerous. So cash bail needs to go. How do we come up with a different system? I think that you know there's a lot of conversations around that. You mentioned a moment ago that you had been a police officer before you were a prosecutor, and you were, I think, a deputy chief in Los Angeles and then chief in Mesa, Arizona, and then you were brought to San Francisco to be the chief of police here before you became DA. How, how has that journey, and, and particularly your former experience as a cop, do you think, how has that influenced the way you think about all of these issues, whether it's policing or incarceration or reforms, all, all of it? Hugely, uh, you know, Scott. The, the reality is, you know, and I, I I grew up in the system, right? I I was very much part of the 1980s and mass incarceration, and and for me, there was just an evolution that started to occur uh, in the last 20 years, uh, about 10 years before I became the district attorney in San Francisco, where I began to start questioning the utility of the high levels of incarceration. Uh, that we engage in this country, and and obviously, uh, you know, uh, acknowledging the obvious that it was that it was so uh, so biased and so racist in its application, because the people that we were arresting often for behavior that would go unnoticed in other communities were generally poor people, black people, brown people, and so by the time I became a district attorney in 2011, I, I had a very clear focus that uh, reducing incarceration was going to be one of my main objective and to do so in a way that it was safe. And, and we went about reducing our incarceration levels in San Francisco. And interestingly enough, our violent crime continued to stay down uh, to historic levels through the entire period of time that I was a district attorney. Now, we had a, we had a, a large increase in car break-ins. Uh, we had 81,000 car break-ins in, in the San Francisco Police Department under the prior leadership, not the current, uh, only made 13 arrests, uh, which we prosecuted about 80% of those. But but basically, our property crimes went off the scale vastly because there was a complete uh, a complete retreat by the police department dealing with, uh, with car break-ins. New well, chief came in. He started yeah. to look at those, and we had those reduced as well. Yeah, but as you know, a lot of people also blame Prop 47 for that uh, and making it hard, it increasing the threshold for charging a felony. Uh, and, and that was one of the things that Prop 20 would have changed and, and failed. But uh, do you reject that idea that it, that reform has contributed to the increase in property crime? 100%. Look, let, let's take San Francisco and let's look at car break-ins, Okay. I know that the police officers would generally and the POA would tell people this is because of Prop 47, but Prop 47 is not, it doesn't cover car break-ins, right? You could steal a $5 piece of property from a car by breaking into it, and it's a felony. So it's never been the case that Prop 47 had anything to do with car break-ins. It's never been the case that Prop 47 had anything to do with burglary, residential burglary. It never been the case that had anything to do with robberies. The problem is that, unfortunately, some people in police leadership decided that they were going to fight reform, and the way that you fight reform was they were not going to do anything about it. So you had 81,000 car break-ins, not covered by Prop 47, but there were 13 arrests. And every time you had your car broken into, um, they were told, go and fill up a, a, a report online because there's nothing that we can do instead of what is happening since then, we have new leadership in the police department 
uh, you know, Chief Scott, he worked with the DA's office. We started identifying um, some of the people that were prolific uh, car burglars that started to target them, started to arrest them. And we saw in the media within 18 months, we saw about a 17, 18 percent decrease in car break ins during the time that I was a district attorney there. So the problem is that, you know, we, we need to get people to stay focused on what their work is and not blame things that are not necessarily within their control, number one, number two, because the, the public has spoken, but lying to the public, which I saw that happening over and over again. And that's why Prop 20 failed, by the way, because the public realized that they were being lied to. Hmm. Um, we're coming up on a break, but uh, George writes, and I believe he himself is Cuban-American. How does being a Cuban-American, what does that mean to you? Why are you not Republican? I think you were at one point, uh, like most Cuban-Americans. And do you support repeal of the Cuban Adjustment Act? Uh, I'm not sure uh, we want to get into that too deeply, but, you know, what are your thoughts about that? You were born in Havana, brought to the U.S. as a kid. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, myself, I, I used to tell people that, you know, your party affiliation when you're a young person is like your religion. Uh, my parents were Catholic, so I became a Catholic. My parents came to this country like most Cuban Americans, uh, you know, running away from communism, and and they became Republicans. And I was a Republican for years, and then I I felt that I was completely disconnected by many of the Republican values, and uh, so I I moved away from the Republican Party. Uh, and you know, I was never, by the way, unlike my parents who were straight ticket voters. You know, my dad. Uh, <laughs> God bless him. You know, he he would not vote for a Democrat. I never did that. I actually very proudly, in fact, one of the biggest fights we had in my family is that I voted for Bill Clinton. And, you know, I thought Bill Clinton was one of the best presidents that we ever had. And I and I campaigned for Barack Obama in, in Arizona. And, uh, and of course, but, Arizona has now turned purple, which, you know, which was a big deal in this last election. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We're going to we have to take a short break. We're going to continue, though, our conversation with George Gascone. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Stay with us for more of our conversation with George Gascone. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim, talking with George Gascon, the DA-elect in L.A. County. And let's go to the phones. Don, in San Francisco, you're next. Hi. Um, I wish the people of L.A. County the best of luck with their new DA. I also am a former cop and was a crime victim in San Francisco, whereas the DA said they failed to do their job and then the mayor failed to do her job. But when I approached the DA to address this issue, the DA failed to do his job. And as a result, I ended up homeless. So all that stuff sounds great, but it's all about where the rubber meets the road. What about the victims? Yeah, well, maybe, uh, George, uh, maybe without 
going into the details of a case that we don't really know a lot of details about. What about victims? I mean, that is something that Chase yeah, well, Boudin has uh, talked yeah. about addressing. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and unfortunately, Don, I, I don't know any. I, I don't know anything about your case, uh, and uh, certainly the victims are important. I'm sorry that you wound up homeless, by the way. Uh, but you know, in San Francisco, we actually created what has become a model for trauma-informed victims' care. We increased the number of victims that were treated and that were uh, uh, that were handled by the San Francisco District Attorney's Office by more than twofold. We actually put uh, victim, we decentralized victim services, we put victim services out into the community. Uh, we lobby statewide to make sure that the victim's compensation uh, would be more inclusive. So there's no question that a victim serve and a victim center approach is critical. And that is something that we did in San Francisco. And that involves being uh, trauma-informed in the way that we do our work. And in uh, San Francisco has one of the best victim services uh, unit in the state. It has become a model. One of the things that I did is we, instead of having a lawyer running that unit, uh, we brought a, a doctor in psychology that was uh, trained on trauma-informed care, uh, Dr. Gina Castro, who has done an incredible job. She's, uh, you know, she's one of the leaders now nationally in, in providing uh, a victim service center approach out of a district attorney's office. So a big component of our work is dealing with victims and recognizing, by the way, that if you leave uh, untreated trauma, Often people that are victimized today, they, they end up uh, victimizing other people. In fact, uh, Dr. Custer used to say that hurt people hurt other people, heal people, heal other people. So unquestionably, we have to make sure that we do right by the victims. Uh, and by the way, doing right by the victims doesn't necessarily always mean that you're going to incarcerate somebody to the fullest extent of the law. What it does is taking care of the, the victim's need and repairing the harm and, you know, uh, and that's uh, the approach that needs to be taken. All right, Don, thanks for the call. Best of luck to you. And let's go now to Arizona. Your old stomping ground, George. Juliana is on the phone. Welcome. Hi there. I am a former crisis worker, and I have some thoughts about this, you know, conversation about defunding the police or at least moving away some services from what the police have been doing, which they're generally not trained to be doing mental health. Um, intervention, but everybody's saying, let's give it to the social workers. Well, we also have to keep in mind that for many Black, Indigenous, and Latinx family, social workers have been in adversarial relationships with our communities. We we lost an entire generation of Indigenous children in the 60s scoop. So for some communities, social workers don't have the best relationships. They are not always trained in mental health crisis intervention. And some people feel like it would be better to have people whose profession is actually mental health crisis intervention doing the work that now police are doing rather than social workers who are seen as part of a system that has been generally oppressive, not helpful, involved in the breaking up of families. You can look at the heart children, that whole situation that went down. And I know not all social workers, but plenty of social workers. In my own family, my sister lost custody for a while and the relationship with that social worker was always adversarial. So they aren't necessarily 
always progressive people. They aren't always, you know, social justice oriented, despite the name of the profession. You know, there's individuals yeah. and they have their own bias in education. So I think it's probably better to have a group of people who are specifically trained in mental health de-escalation, whose go-to is not take somebody away from their family, but maybe trying to find some other ways that are not traditionally in the realm of what social workers have done, because a lot of what they have done has harmed communities of color. Yeah. Juliana, thank you for that. Uh, and George, you know, I, you could certainly train police officers to do de-escalation, and maybe they're already trained in some places, I don't know, but they wouldn't necessarily have to be specifically a social worker, although they, they certainly could be. Yeah, and Don, I think that, you know, Juliana's absolutely right, and if, uh, if I misspoke in any way or shape, we're talking about um, the work that needs to be done by, uh, by mental health uh, professionals would be done by mental health professionals. The work that needs to be done by social workers will be done by social workers. So there are two different components. And to the last part of the question that you, you brought up, Scott, the issue of training police to de-escalate, absolutely they need de-escalation training, but trying to make a police officer a, a clinical psychologist or a clinician in psychology is, is uh, it's not a good allocation of resources. Uh, there are too many forces that are competing there. Um, and it's better that, that we lay, that we allow people that, that, that actually go into the workforce uh, to become clinicians and, and deal with, with mental health issues and do that work and not try to make police officers something that they really are not wired to do. But clearly, uh, even including social workers, mental health workers in, in this mix, it's not a panacea, right? No. Look, I mean, we have to also have the services, right? The, one of the problems is... Again, I, I go back to this because it's important to recognize we defunded mental health services in this state and in this country about four decades ago. And we became, we basically replaced mental health services with policing and incarceration. We have to go back to create the bandwidth to have the services. A lot of this work should be done in a way that, you know, avoids a crisis. Not to say that there will not be crises, but a lot of this work could be avoided. I'm talking about the crisis work if there were good mental health services uh, in place in the community where people are being encouraged to take the medication, where they have the right uh, treatments, where, you know, there's early intervention. You know, what we see the police coming into is is actually the reflection of all the other failures of the system, right? So uh, it is not a panacea. You cannot just simply have think that you're going to solve the problem just by having, uh, you know, people with white coats responding to crises on the street. That has to start much earlier. You have to start providing the bandwidth for treatment and services early on, which will reduce the need to have people responding to a crisis intervention in the street. All right. You do have to report, you know, go to the crisis in the street. You should have somebody that's been trained to do that. All right. Let's go back to the phones now. And Richard in San Francisco, you're next. Yes. Hi. Thanks. Um, The claim that uh, bail does not encourage people to show up in court. I've never seen any study that shows that. The fact that there are a few exceptions or a certain number of exceptions um, doesn't doesn't mean that they're not effective. In fact, when people are putting up their houses and their life savings and all the money they have, friends and family of the accused, they have a much greater incentive to show up in court. So whatever study you're referencing, I'd love to see it and know what that is. But I don't believe that it's not effective, and the fact that there are exceptions does not mean that bail is not effective. 
George. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Richard. I mean, the, the, look, there's no question there's coercive factor when people put their homes uh, in order to come back to court. The, what what we don't address with cash bail is all the people that have to stay in pretrial confinement because they cannot afford bail. Because a lot of people that are there, they don't have the money, so they stay there, not because they're dangerous, but simply because they do not have the home to to get a second trustee or get whatever. The other part that is not addressed here is how uh, often poor people will get a relative, will get grandma or you know somebody in the family to take a second trustee to put the bail in, and then the case gets dismissed, and, but they're out of that money that they had to put forward. So the problem about cash bail, it's not that it doesn't have a coercive impact, it clearly does. The problem is that you have a lot of other people that are left harmed by the process because they cannot afford to put money on the table. The other component too is that people that do put money on the table, uh, they sometimes go out and commit pretty serious crimes uh, because they were violent and they should not have been released, whereas people that were not violent do not get released because they do not have the capacity to put the money. The bottom line is that money doesn't equate to danger. It just simply provides a, 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 a vehicle for the people that can afford to get out even if they're dangerous and for people that may not be dangerous to remain in prison or jail, I'm sorry, in jail uh, on pretrial confinement and often force or coerce into taking a plea deal when they shouldn't. Yeah. I want to ask you a question uh, about your predecessor. Um, uh, Kamala Harris is uh, now, of course, a vice president-elect of the United States. Uh, she portrayed herself as a progressive prosecutor. You worked with her in San Francisco. What are your thoughts about her becoming vice president? Uh, you know, aside from the historic nature of it, what impact might somebody with her background have? Look, I, I think it's wonderful. I think that Kamala will bring a level of understanding uh, about what needs to happen in our criminal justice system that very few people could. Um, you know, she was definitely a progressive for her time. I think also I'm always very, uh, uh, you know, very careful. I tell people, you, you, you know, the, this movement has continued to evolve. And uh, but, you know, she did some really progressive things like, uh, you know, how to, uh, you know, get 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 people diverted from court and, and drug cases very early on. And, and frankly, I believe that her experience as a district attorney in San Francisco and her experience as the attorney general provides her with a wealth of information and insight that uh, will help uh, this incoming administration uh, to really begin to look at reform from the federal level. You know, there are two components to reform. Obviously, the locals, we have a lot of work to do. And when it comes to incarceration, really is driven by locals. It's not by the federal system. But there's a great deal that the federal system can do to encourage uh, reform measures and the evolution of the system uh, by granting money and by helping uh, with the practices at the local level. And I believe that Kamala is uniquely qualified to get that done. It is really extraordinary to have somebody from San Francisco be both the speaker of the House of Representatives and Vice President of the United States. It's uh, yeah, quite, yeah. <laughs> quite something. You're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. We're talking with George Gascon, San Francisco's former district attorney, just elected DA in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, rather. Um, you know, one of the issues you've talked about is the death penalty. And there, you know, there, as you know, hasn't been an execution in California since, I think, 2006. Uh, there is currently a moratorium 
on executions uh, put in place by the governor, Gavin Newsom. Uh, and the current DA, Jackie Lacey, often sought the death penalty as DA. Uh, you're going to you're going to you're going to stop doing that. I know you haven't. You're not a supporter, so I would, I'm not surprised. But uh, you know, what impact might that have? Do you think? Well, it will have a huge impact. Number one, uh, I think that the reality is that until until the death penalty comes out of the books, um, it could be reactivated at any time. I think that one of the reasons why the governor put a moratorium is is because he recognized that there were uh, many people in the system that had already exhausted all the all their appellate uh, uh, processes, and uh, with the one drug protocol that was approved that he was going to be presiding over probably one of the largest uh, periods in our history of executions, and he did not want to do that for uh, for many good reasons. Uh, so I think it's important to recognize that it's really up to district attorneys not to put more people into the system until we abolish the death penalty. And unfortunately, uh, the current district attorney for another week uh, continued to put people on their throat even after the moratorium. She put, in fact, 22 or 23 people uh, in their throat in the last seven years. About a third of all the people in their throat in California, which is roughly about 700, come from L.A. County. So uh, it is critically important for uh, someone that believes in abolishing the death penalty, uh, w- which I do, to make sure that we don't put any more people on the system, uh, and then that we work to get other people out of the, out of that uh, death penalty, and it, it has both a financial implication and obviously has a social implication. You know, people that are prosecuted uh, for you know under the death penalty track, the cost of litigation and then the cost of incarceration is tremendously higher, um, and uh, with really no return on that investment because it doesn't deter crimes, it doesn't really have any other impact other than just simply costing us a lot of money. And then we have to look at the potential that an innocent person may end up being executed, which we know. I mean, in fact, out of this L.A. County office, we have seen uh, there's somewhere around 2,000 claims of wrongful convictions, uh, which also this office hasn't attended to. So there are many components to why it's important to stop sending people to death road. Uh, as we work towards the abolishment of the death penalty. Well, and you also talked about uh, being uh, retroactive and working to reverse death sentences to life without parole. How, how does that work, and, and what about victims' families in that process? Yeah, I mean, and look, I mean, th- there's no question that we will have to have conversation with victims' family, but the, the, here's where, you know, and, and this is a conversation that I had with many victims' families in, in, in San Francisco when I was a district attorney, because, you know, we have people that came to my office wanting me to seek the death penalty, but when people understand that the, the the process of death penalty, even if an execution were to occur, is so protracted, you're looking at decades where they're going to be consistently over and over again ripping that band-aid off and having to relive uh, the horrors of the, the initial event uh, where their family or their loved one was murdered and having to deal with that over and over again, whereas if you get away from from uh, you know, from the death penalty process, you know there is some finality to the to the legal process. Obviously, people are never going to be made whole, right? You lost a family member, and that is forever going to be the case. But reliving the process over and over again because of a of a failed system and the death penalty is not necessarily good for the family either. So yes, we're going to be having 
conversations with family members, but we also have to look at the, 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 the fact that the, the people that we have in their throat are costing California taxpayers millions and millions of dollars that could be reinvested in mental health services and many other things that are likely actually to reduce uh, you know, the number of murders and other crimes that occur every day. Just about a minute left, but I want to ask you, the legislature comes back into session next week. Uh, they've gotten a lot of reforms done over the past few years. What would you like to see them do that hasn't been done, that's been tried and failed, or maybe something altogether different? Yeah, I think, look, I, I think that we need to continue to work. There's things like, for instance, in the last legislative uh, session, there was an attempt to create a certification process for uh, law enforcement officers that if they get terminated from one place, they do not get to continue to go into another place and become a police officer again, that they're sort of centralized licensing process, much like you do for attorneys and doctors and other professionals. So, you know, that's something that I'm very interested in. And there will be other things that we're going to be looking at. Obviously, the whole issue of cash bail is something that we're going to revisit. So it's a lot of work to be done. All right. And you take office a week from today. Is that right? That's correct. And that's uh, Monday. All right. Well, best of luck to you, uh, George Gascon. And uh, obviously, there'll be a lot of attention on you as you become the first person ever in the country to be the district attorney in two counties. Uh, so thanks very much for you know stepping up and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Scott. And by the way, I just want to shout out for Michael uh, Chris, you know, Crasney for all the incredible service he provided to our community and wish him a wonderful retirement. All right. Thanks so much. We'll pass that along in case he's not listening. George Gascon, the <laughs> district attorney elect in Los Angeles County. I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> Take care and uh, <laughs> good, you, good luck to you. Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim. I'll be back tomorrow and we hope that you'll join us then. Have a great day. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.